Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, Timo from uh, oh shit, I forgot the name here. Mo- <laughs> moments <laughs> in media. Moments in media. I was like, moments in anime. No, that's not. <laughs> I apologize. That's very important. That's all right. Okay, but you were just playing D and D, and you said your game is Five E, and yep. uh, you're about to tell us what character you're playing. Yeah. So my friend and I are switching off DMing on this campaign. So I actually played as a player tonight. Uh, I'm playing a cleric fighter. Hmm. I've never actually like heard of that of like having two DMs for the same campaign. So then are your like player characters sort of like NPCs too? Like are you? We uh, the way we've done it is we're two characters with one body. Interesting. <laughs> so our personality oh, like off. Lady Hawk or uh, ah, that one thing from the trench coat brigade. Yeah. Yeah. So he came up with his character first, which was already uh, an undead character. So we basically mm-hmm. just two minds got stuffed into the same body. But, but then I'm curious, do you like sort of DM when you're also playing the character? Like, is he like, hey, when this thing happens, you should do this? <laughs> like, because because, you know, like the way you want the, yeah, the campaign well, to go, right? <laughs> We came up with a lot of the story beats and uh, world building together. So, yeah, there's a little bit of back and forth there. Nice. That's That's awesome. Uh, Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I've never heard of a gameplay like that. Yeah, it's a fun time. It's a good compromise. Because it could be a real bummer if you're the DM. And like, I do think that that's like one of the things that makes it hard is it's so much work for the DM compared to the players. And then like, yeah, I don't know, just like getting that balance right is hard i mean it gives us a good break right so that one of us can prepare for a couple of sessions and then the other one has that off so that they can then prepare for the yeah. next one all right so our guest is already paying off big here <laughs> yeah it's great okay uh well you made me think about uh, uh ben and i uh the first things we like really super bonded over one of them was D. and it might sound sad but we <laughs> used to play D with just the two of us oh. so we would kind of switch <laughs> on yeah. with just two characters and you're like okay we're going this way and this is happening and let's roll some dice yeah absolutely uh, it was a lot of fun <laughs> really <laughs> Oh Sorry. yeah, yeah, man. I, I did that with my with my brother too. It was kind of two player D and D. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's like telling a collaborative story. I yeah. will keep an open mind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay cool. Uh, well, welcome everyone to Pem Pem Pals, Darling in the Franks edition. Uh, this time it's episode seven. I'm Alex. This is Brian. Hey, I'm Ben. And we are happy to be joined by a new guest uh, that we've never had on the podcast, uh, but someone who is no novice to Franks. Uh, This is Timo from Moments in Media. Hey, Timo. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Uh, And Timo is very cool. Timo did his homework. Timo knows, has listened to some episodes of our show. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) So you have covered Darling in the Franks before. I think I saw, I think I watched two videos of yours. I might have been more. That's correct. I've done two. Okay, cool. So what, how do you feel about the show in general? Are you you a fan? Do you you hate it? So I think the first half of the show is some of the best anime I've ever seen. And I think the second half of the show is a major disappointment. Right. Do you think it's the curse of Gainax? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I feel that. Okay. It, it, does Gainax yes. have that reputation? For well, Timo, the, you're more familiar half. with um, Studio Trigger shows than I think the three of us combined, uh, just based on some of the moments in media videos I watched. Would you feel like that's a f- fair assessment? Yeah, Studio Trigger is really how I got into anime, actually. Oh, okay. 
Like, do you feel like there's a similar phenomenon with Studio Trigger productions? I think very much there is a sort of level of, my theory is that there's a lot of forethought that goes into the original planning of the series. Mm -hmm. And then they get about two thirds of the way through before they start making it. And then they have to rush everything and come up with the last bit as they're going. And I think that really shows in how well connected the first parts often are and how tenuously connected the rest of it is. I do feel like there is a certain kind of um, economics thing. Like I work in narrative podcasts and it's like, we want the first episode to be awesome to like hook people. And like, you do just lose some viewership usually as the series goes, you know, maybe it's a little different if it's something broadcasting Mm -hmm. on TV, um, but definitely for, for streaming stuff, that's the way it works. And so I think often there is more attention paid to the beginning than the end. Cause it's like, well, you kind of already got those people <laughs> like they <laughs> they like this show if they're watching all the way to the end i don't know it's not a great way to do things but but i wonder if there's something similar to that in in kind of like oh yeah anime and are, production. You, are is it uh how do i pray this like do you start one phase before you're completely done with another phase like are you at the same time like interviewing people and editing yeah yeah and it always gets super rushed by the end (laughs) so you're kind of like losing your runway as you're going through the production um but then there's other stuff like there's other ways of making it where you make the whole thing and then lock it all you know before you put anything out so so i think Mm -hmm. it really so just one last question uh from our trigger expert do you have a, a trigger title that you would be most excited about and maybe another one that would be like one that you're more disappointed in so, I mean, I guess it's not really technically a trigger show, but Gurren Logan, a lot of the same staff worked on it, and it's really sort of a precursor to most of their work. And that one mm. is really special to me. It was very formative. And I think that's part of the reason why coming directly into Kill a Kill, which was, I believe, their first work as Studio Trigger, that really disappointed me in that it just took all of my least favorite parts of Gurren Logan, like the over excessive fan service and the over the top everything it's just so much but it doesn't have <laughs> any of the sort of subtleties that Gurren really has well i think we're gonna have a real interesting conversation today because uh we're doing a beach episode <laughs> yeah. oh yeah well it's great that you don't like fans so we can complain about it together <laughs> Believe it or not, this is actually one of my favorite episodes of the series. Oh my oh, god! Cool. <laughs> you can defend it. That's so awesome. Okay, um, we are going to have a great discussion tonight. Okay, let's uh, do this thing. If you don't mind me asking, how uh, how old are you, Timo? Uh, I'm 23 right now, so I'm pretty young. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm like 34, so uh, and Brian's about a decade older than the two of us, so uh, that's cool. I am 48 years old. Yeah, got a wide range. Yeah. I'm going to okay, keep cool. my age mysterious. Okay, cool. <laughs> Ben's only 12. <laughs> Don't tell his mom we let him watch this. <laughs> Last time on The Dome People, the big day arrived, along with a giant cube. Squad 26 did an adequate job maintaining the perimeter and attacking the cube, but their efforts ultimately unleashed the clacks in a box within. Zero Two flew to meet the challenge and save the squads, but Hero just wanted to die so badly. In the underworld, Hero was visited by his first partner, Naomi, who called him a whiner and sent him back up to this hell called living. 
Reborn and Clax Free, Hero connected with Zero Two on a new level and faced off against the further transformed and now ultra-phallic foe. One triumphant music cue later, the plantations were saved, and we were briefly introduced to a new character who looks suspiciously like the last angel from Neon Genesis. Who is this youth? How big will the Claxosaurs get? Who knows what evil lurks within the hearts of men? Let's find out. Phallic foes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, so we'll do three, two, one, play. So three, two, one, play. After the successful kissing with Plantation 26, Squad 13 was rewarded with a special vacation. I never noticed this music before. This funky jazz really slapped. How are you coming on learning these lyrics, Alex? Oh, not good, but that's okay. I, I will learn it by the end of the series. All right. <laughs> Counting on you. Not a lot that. of things coming up in my personal life. Not a lot of free time right now. I mean, you're you're going to have to do a performance whether or not you learn it, so really. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do a, we'll have a Pem Pem Pals karaoke night. <laughs> I also know a dance choreographer, so uh, just let me know. Well, I feel like if I'm going to dance, I'll have to have a partner. <laughs> One of you two is going to have to volunteer. Well, I, I don't live in Northern Virginia. So. <laughs> I will cosplay as Ben, cosplaying as Zero Two. <laughs> About our kiss during the mock battle, I see it as something special. And I want to be Ichigo, with you. Ichigo, look! I... Shooting stars! Man, he doesn't even hear her. Fuck, I just got the meaning of the title of this episode. With their long tails, the shooting stars blaze a trail. Shooting star moratorium. She's the Ichigo star. It's so dim, it's hard to see and easily overlooked. A new outro song, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a far worse outro. I really like the music. Sounds like a pop idol type number. I mean, the song is okay. I just hate these new visuals. I'm like, oh, I thought the other ones were evocative, like of them as looking like normal teenage girls. And now it's just like, right, swimsuits, cool. And it's like, it's like, did they do another swimsuit day? Because I just watched the swimsuit episode and they were not wearing those swimsuits. Well, so, I mean, this is the revenue model of an anime studio, right? They do this and then they can sell like the PVC figures. Mm-hmm. Which, if I understand right, they make more off of merchandising than actually selling the rights to the shows for airing. Right. Who needs to create art? You know, we need factory work. That's what we need. That's what the economy needs. Sounds right to me. Thank you, George Lucas. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I picked up a few new things on this pass through. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, so this is episode, what is it again? Seven? The uh, number seven uh, implies perfection. (laughs) Yeah, so we're on episode seven, Shooting Star Moratorium. My uh, impression of this episode now is like a series of interruptions. Uh, Seems like it was something that we all noticed. I didn't write down specifics, but I was just making tick marks in the margin. Uh, I counted eight times. Uh, Someone was having a conversation that seemed like it was like really going somewhere and then got interrupted. Uh, the saved by the bell moment, as Alex puts it. And just wondering about why so many interruptions. Uh, it just made me think about uh, the theme of this episode. Well, maybe not the theme, but this is a beach episode, right? Yeah. The obligatory beach episode. 
super uh, ubiquitous anime trope. But here we are. And uh, when I think about a beach episode and like the things I don't like about it, uh, what I usually don't like about a beach episode is it feels like an interruption because uh, a typical beach episode does not contribute character development. It does not move a story forward. It's called fan service, but really it's revenue service. It produces images that the studio can license to make stickers and figures and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. At any rate, I'm sure there's uh, different opinions about this. I feel like Nishigori and friends uh, did the best they could <laughs> with a beach episode. And I feel like it does move the story forward, even though my, my first reaction, it does feel like an interruption to the main story. And the reason why I feel like Nishigori was able to do something positive with this is because uh, the interactions that take place in this episode and the discoveries they make, uh, they sort of interrupt the status quo of what it means to be like a squad and Frank's pilots. I think for me, I absolutely agree it is an interruption, but considering exactly where it comes right after a lot of really heavy, serious battles, I think it's positioned well to be a sort of breath of fresh air in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah works less well if you're watching it incrementally but if you're binging it i think it's a good sort of stop in the middle of a lot of serious stuff yeah agreed it did feel pretty natural gosh i'm drawing a blank on other shows i've watched but like um okay like don machi is it wrong to pick up girls in a dungeon uh it's a super etchy show but i love it it is one of my favorite shows and then they'll do something where they'll go to a hot springs or a beach or something like that and it is just out of the blue. Mm-hmm. They're going down to the dungeon to kill some slimes or whatever. And like, oh, whoops, there's a hot spring. Let's just get down into our skibbies. You know what I mean? <laughs> is it inside the dungeon? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I, I felt like this is like a little bit contrived. I mean, it doesn't sound like as contrived as the, the unsin in the dungeon or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was interesting. They felt like they needed to really justify it, right? So we have like that conversation between Nana and Hachi, where they're like, Sending the children to the beach by themselves? The doctor's ideas are always so unconventional. Oh, you know, like sometimes you need to be in a new environment to do whatever. And mm-hmm. um, Dr. Franks is so weird. Sending the kids <laughs> to the beach. What's this all about? So, I mean, Dr. Franks is a pervert. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think that's this is the exact story mechanism <laughs> they use. So, like, I think Franks. Like he planned the whole thing. So just riffing off of Alex saying Dr. Franks is a pervert. We should have just had one scene of him like looking at them through like a CCTV. Like, rubbing oh, his metal. she could have been like talking to Nana and Hachi, but looking out the window and they're like, what are you looking at? And just his like mechanical eye focuses is like nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Don't worry. Oh my god, this is gonna be a struggle to get through this episode. Like, I'm this is gonna be great. Serious things to time. say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Doctor Franks is sculpting some bikini figures of the girls. <laughs> um, he wants to be provocative, right? He sets up this reward day off thing. He must have the location in mind already because it's just a, a mirror uh, structure of Plantation Thirteen. Like the, I don't know what it's called. Is it a lagoon? Like the inlet from the ocean, like on the coastline. It reminded me of like the pond scene in Mistletane. Oh yeah. There's the decayed city, but then like there's the sort of manor house on top of the hill, mm-hmm. uh, just the way Mistletane mm-hmm. is above 
Plantation 13. And we're totally abandoning our chronological order here, but the manor house that they go and visit, it's like so many details are replicated and superimposed on mistletane, like the stained glass windows, the wood carving mm-hmm. on the furniture, uh, the light fixtures, the, like the staircase layout with the atrium. This is all planned, right? Frank's wanted them to find this. Uh, there's this line at the end when they're finally sitting down and eating. One, one person says like, where did this all come from? Like every time I heard that line, I was like, where does this all come from? And maybe it's not like who specifically set it out, but who planned all of this? Maybe it's like a line to make you think like, what's Frank's up to? You know, that's such an interesting perspective because I have never once thought about this episode in relation to the plot. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you just think it's just like anime trope, like kind of. No, I think it fits. I think it fits into the show as part of the greater metaphor for it. You know, it's like, it's a field trip for the kids in a sort of. Okay. See how these characters interact with each other in a completely different setting from the normal area, which, you know, if you, if you look at their normal day-to-day as the very sort of structured school Mm. life of, you know, young middle school or high schoolers, and then this is for them a field trip where they sort of explore on their own and they are put in this sort of, completely different circumstance. I think it fits thematically with a bunch of characters who their whole point is that they're sort of growing up. And I think mm-hmm. this is a way to explore that. Yeah. We we should definitely visit this in our uh, spoiler section. I've got some pretty specific thoughts that we cannot let a 12-year-old hear. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> Um, okay, <laughs> I lost where we were. <laughs> no, that's fine. Okay, so um, they go to the beach. There's some funky, awesome jazz. This is uh, what's her name's first time in the ocean. Oh yeah, zero two. She finally gets her gets to see an ocean, right? Yeah, like a lot plays out pretty quickly. A lot of dynamics uh, uh, move forward quickly in this. There is fan service. At least it's not very lingering. Um, we do move quickly. So most of like vast majority of the episode also just takes place with the the pilots, the kids. But we have this small interruption where Papa and the Lamarck Club are talking about sending the nines to go meet the, I guess, the 13 squad. And also that Plantation 13 is like, all right, that is our number one priority because, I don't know, Franks is doing something there and we have to keep an eye on it. So a lot of um, Gendo evading the eyes of uh, Seal, those vibes. Yeah, I mean, my only other observations... The quick character moments, Goro is still like fatherly, if not a leader. He's like calling out, you know, looking out for the others. Uh, He jumps on like affirming, like being positive about Hiro and uh, his new status with the group. It did seem weird to me, like Ichigo's voiceover. It kind of reminded me of Blade Runner. It just seemed like, oh, are we doing an Ichigo episode? But we're not. Well, we kind of are doing an Ichigo episode. Like you said. Okay. The, the name of the episode well, is Shooting Star Moratorium. Moratorium is a break mm-hmm. from something, right? It's like a, a harsh term, like a legal term. But the shooting star, as you said, is Ichigo. But, but then we, we end not with... It's yeah, wouldn't the shooting stars be zero two since Ichigo is the hard to see star? Oh, okay. That makes sense. So... But- uh, I, I was just going to say, I don't think it's necessarily like an Ichigo herself episode, but I feel like there is a lot of that love triangle plot going on in, in this episode. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So we go from squad, I mean, a plantation 13 and ape people back to the beach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is an interesting scene. Goro, Futoshi, and Zorome. Uh, Mitsuru is not there. Hiro's not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking at the girls on the beach in their bikinis. And uh, they say something weird. Like Zorome is like, I don't know why, but they're like 50% cuter or something like that. Uh, it was like so <laughs> incredibly naive. I'm like, they don't know why they're aroused by girls in bikinis. Yeah. No, I, they don't know. I mean, I thought stuff. it was just, I, I thought it was more just like, oh, girls at the beach. There's just something hotter about it or something like that. Like, I, I thought it was more like, like a throwaway line like that. I think it's, it is sort of like they don't really know what they're talking about because to me, right, these characters are really young and they don't, they never had any information given to them about any kind of puberty or growing up. So this episode is all about sort mm-hmm. of showing them that. Mm-hmm. So I think there is sort of that naivete is sort of vital to them in that way. Yeah. So the, the two things that sort of reinforce that for me, it's like Zorome doesn't even understand like, like when he corners Hero talking about a kiss. You have to let me kiss you! Like context is completely lost on him. And then later when they're all walking up the hill to like the, the manor house, Goro's talking to Hiro and he's saying something about like, I have a lot of fun being with Ichigo, but sometimes it hurts. It's like, man, like he's talking about an emotional attachment and he doesn't even know it. Like they're so ignorant mm. about matters of intimacy and attraction. <laughs> oh yeah. They have had no sex ed. They have had no, and they haven't had like popular media or anything like that. And they're specifically being kept in the dark. So one of the interesting things in this is we have this kind of temporal flashback thing that I'm trying to remember if we've had mm. that in earlier episodes. And it is kind of interesting because since this is the beach episode, I think that makes it easier to follow where you are in this story because when we like flashback, it's like, okay, now they're in normal clothing. They're back oh, in the, yeah. the, the plantation. Whereas I think if we were flashing from the plantation to these scenes, you might be like a little bit lost about, is this something happening now? Or is this a flashback? <laughs> really quick <laughs> here. Uh, the, the other very interesting thing about the scene uh, that I liked was um, like hero acknowledges like this, like, the, the whole issue of the fan service thing. He's out there in the surf with Zero Two and they're talking and like Sorry. he wants to be a nice guy and he realizes he's staring. So he averts his eyes. He, he acknowledges it. He mentions it. And I was like, that's a pretty solid dude right there, I think. I think that's what gets me about that whole scene, actually. That he acknowledges it? Well, that he acknowledges it and then it's immediately contrasted with uh, the other three guys in that they all sort of come at this same sort of situation from three very different personality perspectives. So, so Timo, you'll have to help me out with this, but like, I've only seen a handful of like beach episodes in anime and I don't feel like I've ever seen a beach episode handled like this before. Like, just as you were saying, like there's different characters reacting differently. Uh, I was immediately thinking of Mitsuru. He doesn't care. He has no interest at all. You don't think he's kind of hitting on Ikino? Ikino? <laughs> uh, if you got that vibe, please explain. I didn't feel that at all. But like when they're having that conversation. Oh, that felt adversarial to me. Yeah, I think that's how he hits on people. 
I don't know, maybe it's just because I have the context of stuff that happens later, but to me, that sounded very sort of accusing. Mm. Yeah, I, I wrote down something he said that with a question mark. Funny how fast things change. Funny how fast things change. Like he said that and gave her a weird look and like it ruffled Ikuno's feathers. It's like, oh, does he have like a sense about her? Oh, sorry. I was just thinking out loud. So the boys pull Hero down to their level, drag him off out of the water somehow and up onto the beach. And Zorame's like, well, first of all, Zorame bends over in front of the camera. So at least there's some equal opportunity fan service in this episode. I have some thoughts on that, man. I, I generally don't really care about fan service. Like if someone loves fan service, great. If they hate it, whatever. But like, to me, it should at least be equal, right? And I just expected more from Nishigori. This is the guy who wrote and direct Idol Masters, which is like an anime version of My Little Pony. It's all about friendship and kindness and life lessons and stuff. You know, and it's 13 pop idol girls, but it's not a fan service show. I don't care what the mouth breathers say online. It's pretty innocent stuff. You know, and it's, it's a shoujo anime. And what the fuck's going on, man? <laughs> like, why is the fan service just for the male viewers, or at least the ones that are attracted to female bodies? I, I just feel like it ends up being much more like shonen, and and it just feels like they are kind of assuming yeah. a male audience. Oh, yeah. yeah, like specifically this episode, you see the tits, you see the ass, and you hear the harp, and you hear the yes. it happens three times. I think uh, we do get some like bulging crotch shots of Zora May, but it's not tantalizing. It's just the camera angle through his legs. Not to you. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know what I'm talking about? The dress up of it, like the slow-mo, the harp. You know what I mean? That's the staging. Like that's, I think this is fan service. Sure, yes. I think at the very least for me, the context is the fan, the fan service for the girls is through the boy's eyes. Uh, like, I don't think we ever see it when the boys aren't looking directly at the girls, whereas there isn't ever really a situation that that happens in reverse. So that's, I can excuse it a little bit. I do agree yeah. with you, though, that it is sort of. But, but, but I feel like you, I mean, you could do the reverse, right? Like you could have sure. the yeah. girls be like, oh, like Goro, man, those abs or whatever. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, that when Ichigo was staring at the boys in the water. That was an opportunity. We yeah. could have seen what she was seeing and given some eye candy to people attracted to male-bodied characters. That would have been fine. Mm -hmm. They didn't. I, I, <laughs> I just, I kind of put it in the category of like the like Futoshi, like fat jokes that I think it's just Oh, of like, which we got another one. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah a few in this episode. And I don't know. I just think it's not, it's like stuff that I think they'll like look back on and be like, yeah, we kind of. Could have done better. Yeah. Alex, did you have any other thoughts about that? Like I was just, okay. you were so quick to say that Zora May bending over wasn't tantalizing. I was like, wow, I think you have a very narrow view of what's tantalizing. Yeah, I really did mean just the way they presented it. It wasn't the same. Yeah, you're right. It, it does get dressed mm -hmm. up differently. And I, I did not, I was not thinking about it in that context. I was, oh, I'm glad they did this for yeah. once. In the other episodes, there was yeah. nothing. There would be like, girl body fan service and then you would like cut to the boys with their suits already mm -hmm. on and you're like oh okay that's all right fine yeah. whatever let's get on with this episode it is one of the more upsetting parts of the series as a whole 
Uh, oh, but Zorami did endear himself to me when he was like, I'm going to kiss you, hero. Don't try to stop <laughs> me. I was like, well, the last line is a little troubling, but I really enjoy your enthusiasm and your open-mindedness. So, so that scene ends with another sudden interruption, which is uh, discovering this cave. This is a very, I think, kind of like hero's journey thing of crossing this threshold. And, you know, then we walk through the woods and we get this mysterious music. Yeah, and we, we come through this uh, like cliff passage and it's kind of like yonic in its formation. So like we're passing through this like almost birth canal and then we come to like the predecessor of their, uh, oh, I was thinking the predecessor of Mistletane, but that's like the microcosmic thing, right? It's the predecessor of their way of life. Like this is the civilization before their civilization. Because, like, the world you and I know, all the four of us know, it's gone. The only human life is within these plantation things. Like, the stuff that, that we're like, oh, yeah, the, the things that we think they're doing that are normal, that is not normal in the world anymore. We just think of it as normal because, like, we live in that old world. This, this adds to sort of my interruption theme of this episode. Like, um, for the most part, like, these Frank's pilots, like, as Timo was saying, like, they have a very controlled, structured life. And now Dr. Frank's threw this wrench into the schedule and they have these new experiences. And what's great about that is, like, whatever your worldview is, like, whatever you're exposed to and observed, it, it changes the boundaries of your reality. They never saw this kind of thing before. And no matter what it is, they conclude about it. Uh, just walking around it and witnessing everything it's going to change the idea of what is possible, what is out there. And again, no matter what different conclusions each of them might draw, all of their worldviews are now permanently changed just by virtue of seeing something new. Mm. And I think just jumping off of that really quickly, part of this sort of outside world, and I could be slightly misremembering, but it looks much more saturated than any of the stuff inside the plantations we've ever seen. Yeah, uh, And like everything is brighter and heavier and i think that's sort of effective at sort of showing this is a different place like there's these wide shots of asymmetrical terrain and like there's that studio ghibli shot when they're just coming into the sort of ruined yeah. town uh that really just stands in total contrast to the like the exact symmetry and perfection in uh design of all of the plantation stuff so another interesting observation about that, the first time we heard Zero Two talk about the cities in the plantations, she described them as cold and lifeless. And now we see this like mirror of these cities, but it's, even though it's dead, it's like teeming with life. Like mm, yeah. nature is on the verge of completely taking over this thing. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. I feel like it means something. Oh, just the just that stark contrast between the plantation life uh, and life outside, like, you know, is a comfortable life worth living? Is a, like, what kind of life is worth living? Or what mm. is life? You know, you said uh, that it's empty, right? It's a ghost town, but it's teeming with life. Both, like most of the world we've seen is a desert, but this has plants growing everywhere. And not only like biological life, 
but there's an age to it, a history to it. It looks lived in. Mm. Like you just said, Timo, I didn't notice. Like when you first started talking about it, like saturated and heavy, I was like, like, I don't know what these terms mean. And then I thought about it. I was like, I know exactly what these <laughs> terms mean. Oh my gosh, that's great. Like the, the coloring of the background, it's more full. There's more detail and uh, imperfection to it because the stuff in the city and, the, and even Mistletane, the newer stuff, it's all, you know, it's not full of life or it has less life in it because it has been used. Less. And sort of to that point, I don't think there's any really metal structures in that ruined city that I can remember. So it's all very sort of like natural stuff. Mm. Uh, I think there were some shots of like torn apart uh, power lines okay. or something. And that's pretty evocative yeah. too. Oh, no, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there was some sort of like metal girding or something with plants growing on it, if I remember. But but I think that is true that we're seeing all this wood and, and natural stuff. And I was just going to say this, there was, this was kind of a theme in Evangelion too, where they're talking about like, you know, building these cities and how it's kind of like this like armor or something like it's like, like we're protecting ourselves, right? We're, we're creating this big shell and carapace to like stay alive. But in some ways we're also like walling ourselves off from the actual world and actual experience. And, and it, it feels like, again, this is some sort of like, I don't know, meditation on, uh, you know, the, the modern city life versus the, the natural way, the more, yes. the more natural way that we used to live, which, which I guess, you know, now we're in, I guess in Evangelion too, it's kind of like imagining this future where we're even more sterile, even more kind of disconnected and, and, the kind of city life that we live in now <laughs> to them feels supernatural, right? Not supernatural as in supernatural, yeah. but it feels more <laughs> natural. Like alien. <laughs> Hypernatural. And it it highlights that juxtaposition of the, the emotional journey and the education we have with the squad we just met, Squad 26, because uh, they have a more scripted life. They have less room for expression and in individuality and stuff and so they are leading like less of a life than our pilots are because our pilots are in more dangerous situations and in more unpredictable situations they are leading a fuller emotional life and it's all thanks to dr franks and somebody said earlier about like i think it was you brian like this one thing that dr franks did changed what they knew right put something else into their schema and it it's going to affect everything. It's, you know, casting a stone into a pond and the ripples appear mm -hmm. everywhere. And I thought back to like, oh, well, zero two was doing that or is doing that, like, especially at the breakfast scenes. But then I thought, oh, but zero two is only there because Dr. Franks put her there. Yeah. So it does all lead back to Dr. Franks. Yeah. He's doing something with these kids and not in a weird way. Well, kind of a weird way. <laughs> It's just for me, it's so interesting to sort of get that perspective on it, because when I think of this show, I even though it is named Darling in the Franks, I never think of Dr. Franks like he is not one of the things that comes to mind when I think about Darling in the Franks at all. But you're right, like it does seem like there's this sort of mm -hmm. presence that he has in terms of story and plot. I guess I just never think about the story and plot of this show. And, and is it true <laughs> that the, the Mecca, they're also called Franks because they're named after him? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Timo, 
wait, I have to ask now that I've thought about it because this is a big part of our lens, but maybe it's not part of your lens. Uh, have you watched through Neon Genesis? I have, yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, uh, I thought maybe that was a, might be a difference, but like one of the reasons I'm focused on Frank's is because I see a parallel. That's one of the parallels I see right. with Neon Genesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in my head, a lot of the kind of like Gynax and then, um, you know, I don't, I'm not that familiar with Trigger and stuff, but I, I almost feel like it's like, like they keep trying to hit that magic of Evangelion again, or, or maybe at least that kind of like cultural or financial kind of success that they had with that show. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do talk about this a little bit in one of my videos where it does feel like Studio Trigger is trying to hit that exact same story in a bunch of different ways over and over again. <laughs> and you can sort of see that it is a through line. And I think a lot of that is based on Evangelion. And they're just trying to come at that same idea from different directions and they never quite landed. Mm. Well, it's one of those uh, shows that really changed the industry, right? I mean, the same way Gundam, like, changed things from Super Robot to Real Robot. I don't know what you would call the shift that occurred after Evangelion aired. Mm, It's from, like, Real Robot to Lovecraftian Robot. Like, Cosmic (laughs) Horror Robot. Cosmic. Hmm, that's interesting. Hey, can I take us back for just one more thought about the whole beach episode phenomenon? Um, if you must. No, I'm kidding, I did. please. Okay, I was just thinking about, I've seen so many videos that are like not just critical of beach episodes, but specifically this beach episode. I was thinking about something that Zero Two said about a conversation with Dr. Franks that like they wanted pilots to be pervy because it helps with the connection. I'm like, mm. okay, this guy, he's trying mm. to reignite something that's missing in their humanity i guess for lack of a better word mm-hmm. and um you know it's it is provocative to send a bunch of kids to the beach unsupervised you know and there's like oogling that happens um oogling but like well not <laughs> no, sorry i, I have a, a friend who also pronounces it that way i think it's ogling ogling yeah. i'm no, sorry no, no. I, I just i thought it was just my one friend but i guess it's uh i'm from missouri okay <laughs> yeah me and ben are oglers timo are you an ogler or... yeah i'm an ogler as well an ogler. okay but sorry that's it i'm switching i'm starting my own podcast <laughs> the ogle network the oogle network sorry. <laughs> oh my god but in terms of an interruption, it is a success. They do get thrown in this situation. They're seeing each other in their swimsuits and there's ogling happening. <laughs> and, but it, it continues. It turns into conversations later on. Uh, they start talking to each other about attractions. I think Hero says it first. He describes the kiss as like, it makes his heart race. And it uh, made my heart race. And then Goro mm-hmm. says something similar. And it's just like such an honest, innocent way to explain that. Because it's true, right? Like when you feel attracted or aroused to somebody, there's like biological things that happen. And I think that innocence, rather, I think that innocence is a huge part of this episode specifically because, uh, sorry to skip ahead a little bit, but mm-hmm. at the end, Zorome is talking about how, you know, like the adults rely on them to protect them. And, you know, like they're going to be great and eventually they'll become adults because of what they're doing. And that's so hmm. sort of like, it's a lack of understanding in the same way that, you know, a young person has like a child would have of like this sort of A to C comparison. Hmm. And it's nice that there's that connection drawn between the sort of attraction that they have with the overall 
piloting and protecting uh, the adults as well. It's this is such a strange thing because like so the characters say it explicitly like the sensation of like attraction and or arousal. And just by themselves, like those things are generally negative experiences, like your heart racing or like the butterflies in the stomach. But the context is what changes it all to something that's kind of intoxicating. Sure. So I just want to say thanks, Franks. The whole thing was a setup for that rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) Timo, I love that line you brought up. Mitsuru, no, Zorame. When Zorame says... We protect the adults. Hold on. That sentence is backwards, isn't it? Um, Okay, sorry. So they find the town. Kokoro goes exploring on her own uh, to score some sweet meds uh, at this uh, dispensary. It's like a medical facility, right? It's like a pharmacy, I guess. But instead of sweet meds, she just finds a book. But what is the book on? Pregnancy. Your first baby. Ooh, some words she might not know. What's a baby? Where does that come from? Great questions to mm-hmm. ask at 14. <laughs> um, again, I, I feel like, I don't know that I'm, you know, I think the way I'm watching this and the way we talk about stuff that might be spoilers, not being spoilers, I feel like I'm starting to get predictions about stuff. And uh, trying to predict where the show is going is a mistake. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, so I don't know where the show is going, but it feels like the world that they live in, no one has like biological babies anymore that like kids are like grown in vats and like maybe kind of sex the way we think about sex just like doesn't really exist anymore. Those are very strong predictions. Yeah. And their perception of child parent roles is also fucked up. Definitely. A classic cognitive distortion is uh, I am responsible for my parents' happiness or well-being. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, I was just thinking it's kind of like, um, again, just always bring it back to even Kellyanne. I think there, there was this kind of like idea of like, you know, like you zoom out and then kind of like almost like looking at humanity as like an organism right and like the idea we're gonna like unite all people into this like single i can't even remember the the term for the the human instrumentality instrumentality project and and then Mm -hmm. this kind of feels like it's like this world where we've like completely changed you know maybe the way we Mm -hmm. reproduce and the way the hierarchy and how everything works it's it's like in this next weird stage of of humanity yeah Gosh, i had such a weird thought just now like what if we're looking at humanity after someone had attempted instrumentality <laughs> yeah a post-instrumentality world and it's nothing like we imagined <laughs> i guess i would explain ape it's brilliant yeah that's awesome so timo didn't you have a video about like frank's could be like a prequel to yeah. yeah, I at the end of my first Franks video, I talked briefly about that. A lot of that is driven purely by the last 20 minutes of Franks. Oh, okay. but we can we can pause on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's awesome. Okay, so Evangelion is the prequel to uh Darling and the Franks, Franks. and Darling and the Franks is the prequel to Gurren Lagan. Okay. It all go it all makes sense now. Interesting. So Mitsuru saves Kokoro from a bookshelf. And then we go to Ichigo 
and Zero Two kind of bullying her. That's right. I've done it with my darling. <gasps> I guess you guys aren't ready for it yet. Being like, you don't know what kissing is. She's like, shut up. I know what kissing is. She's like, well, you haven't done it. He's like, shut up. I've done it. Yeah, shut up. I've. <laughs> and then it's like, who did you kiss? And then the like seventh interaction. Yeah. That's so like high school teenager. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm generally like, I think they're both awesome characters, but I'm generally on zero two side. But in this, in this scene, I, I feel very bad. I'm like, you're being really mean. And like, she's not okay. With and, this. And they're definitely setting up the the fact that there's this secret kiss between Hiro and Ichigo as like mm-hmm. this, uh, this bomb that's going to go off at some point. Yeah. That's yeah. probably a really good way to characterize it. I do like this, this consistent thing that they're doing. Like, Things aren't all cool, right? Just because there was a good successful mission and Hero didn't die after the third piloting was zero two and people are accepting each other and it's all supposed to be fine now, but it's not like zero two is still zero two. She does not have like great social skills. She doesn't, well, none of them really <laughs> know how to have real secure attachments with each other. Like this friction is just, it's the way things are in real life. I was really surprised at the beginning when you hear, you know, we get this insight into Ichigo's thoughts and that like she's expressing gratitude for Zero Two showing up because of like what Zero Two has brought out in Hero. And, you know, I don't know if that's kind of like her being amazingly mature or her being naive because she doesn't really understand her own attraction and kind of what's going on between zero two and hero that's what i like about ichigo's character though is that it's both it's both that she doesn't quite understand her own feelings and also that she does legitimately care about hero's happiness a lot yeah that is a you know that can be or that is a hard lesson for anyone to learn if they ever learned it in their life to be able to be like oh i love you and that means i care about your happiness and so that might mean like not talking to you. It, it could mean any number of things that aren't what you want. That's a, a real sad, hard thing, man. Like when you start learning that lesson, it's rough. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> is Ichigo there? Ben, is Ichigo there? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, do you mind if I tangent really quickly based on uh, Zero Two talking to Ichigo about kissing? So there's a focus on Zero Two where she talks almost exclusively about the sexual side of love, where she talks about kissing or being together, like physically, the physical side of it, uh, in a way that most of the other characters really don't, like where there's there's certainly a focus on you know the physical aspects of attraction for the other characters, but Zero Two is sort of really missing that emotional uh, part. And I think that sort of fits with how uh, no one can pilot Zero Two more than three times because that sort of fits with how she doesn't form an emotional connection because uh, that emotional connection is sort of part of proper piloting, right? Because Hero sucks at piloting until he starts forming an emotional connection with Zero Two. So there's that level of lacking relationship or lacking aspects of a relationship. Uh, you know, piloting with Zero Two literally kills people because she isn't she doesn't have an emotional connection with them, and it's all physical for her. Mm-hmm. 
Damn. That's sort of like a recipe for a toxic relationship. Where... So, mm-hmm. so, so how does how do we justify that with then um, that line from Doctor Frank's? I mean, I guess I don't know what Doctor Frank's intentions are, right? But what he says is like, "Don't let her consume your emotions too." That is, if you want to always be her partner. If you want this to actually last. Yeah, I don't know. I can't justify that part. So what I think he's saying is like, take care of her emotions, but don't expect her to take care of your emotions. Don't give yourself emotionally to her. Like take her emotional self, do with that, like care about her, but don't give your emotional self to her because she doesn't know how to deal with it. And if you, uh, if you put your burden on her, she will leave you. My mm-hmm. speculation would be that Dr. Franks means well, but he does not have any faith in zero two. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, I'm just thinking of Dr. Franks because he looks like Dr. Wiley. And now I'm thinking about zero two in a proto man outfit. <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah, I never thought about it, but he does really look like Dr. Wiley. Oh my God. Zero two. What am I thinking? Not in a Proto Man outfit. In a zero outfit. It's right in front of me <laughs> for Mega Man X. What was I thinking? Yeah, the color scheme matches too. Yeah, we got to get your eight bit artist uh, friend to uh, to render something like that. Yeah, uh, Timo, that was an excellent tangent. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're back together for sunset. And they are going to have a little feast and they don't know how the food got there, but it's all wonderful. It's like full meals. It's all hot and freshly prepared. It's nutritious. And even it looks so good that Zero Two will even eat it without it being drenched in honey. Although Goro does have to offer it to her first. Yeah, that was another uh, classy move. You know, this is the woman who almost killed his best friend, (laughs) but he does this gesture of inclusion, man, like. I'm I'm team Goro all the way. It's almost he's too giving though to an extent, yeah. right? Like he doesn't take care of himself at all. Yeah. And there was one line bef- right before we eat. Uh, Zero Two says humans have abandoned the world outside of the plantation. There are tons of places like this all over the world, yeah. but no one lives in them. Like it's not just one model town. We are looking at our world in the future, or at least like an allegory for it, and. Something I noticed when they sit down to like have a talk by the like cocoa and stuff by the campfire, the girls all sit two to a log, but the boys will not sit together on the same log. I was like, are the girls just more like intimate and comfortable with each other? Or is that like a sexist thing? I think I filtered out any log sitting place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There were a few things that, that stood out to me in this scene. So getting back to having an expanded worldview, Hero gets contemplative and he starts questioning. He questions like, what if we never started drilling for magma energy? Mm. And that gets some pretty strong reactions out of Zorome and Mitsuru. He doesn't criticize the adults or uh, Papa, but he just says this thing that's like, hey, I don't like where these questions are going. The fucking adults (laughs) and Papa are the shit. it's like his buddies are still pretty indoctrinated. Yeah. And this is kind of, this was stuff that we talked a lot about in season one as kind of like these monsters as, as kind of metaphors for like human creation. So whether that's like the atom bomb or like global warming and, and these kind of environmental disasters, but it seems like, you know, I hadn't really thought about it before 
with this kind of connection between extracting this like energy from underground and that now causing these problems that the the children have to to deal with mm-hmm. right and then i guess kind of everything being kind of like for the most part desert also kind of gives imagery of <laughs> of like a world decimated by global warming or or something like that don't the claxosaurs mm-hmm. only attack in the desert like they i don't think they typically attack in like forested areas yeah i've only seen them emerge in wasteland yeah so it's there's that level of they almost exist because of that mm. Mm. or they can only exist in those places that are sort of completely devoid of natural life interesting oh those claxosaurs well as long as we're talking about claxosaurs I did make an interesting discovery, and I'll share this little document with everybody here. Do, 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 do. Document? You expect me to read for this podcast? Well, it's, it's an image. An image of the Earth's crust. Yeah. So the class system for the claxosaurs is the same naming system for these uh, transitional areas. So we have a Moho class, uh, the Gutenberg class. I don't remember a Repti class, uh, but there is a Conrad class. Spoiler for Ben, it doesn't actually matter, but we do see a layman class later. Cool. So basically this anime is all about like the hollow earth theory. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is a hollow earth podcast now. And if you don't believe in it, you can stop. Yeah. Fuck those flat earth people, man. It's hollow. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we just have one last real scene. Uh, everyone oh, oh, gets time. Yeah, be- oh, but before we get to that, um, and then the Zoromay says something really weird, like in response to Hero. He's like, uh, you know, still singing the praises of Papa and the adults. And he says, like, mm-hmm. if we keep being awesome or whatever, like Papa will pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Ichigo officially accepts Zero and Hero, Hero too. <laughs> <laughs> Hero and Zero Two. Hero as well. <laughs> yeah. But Zero Two is not there. She's on the beach. And then I was wanted to ask you guys about this. The camera moves to Zero Two swimming, and she looks over at the people on the beach by the fire, and she just has this weird look on her face. And I'm like, what are we supposed to read into that? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know why, but in my memory, Zero Two is sitting with everyone else at the fire when Ichigo welcomes them. Mm-hmm. So I had completely sort of forgotten that she was still an outsider even while you know she was being welcomed in and i think that does sort of speak to how she is distinctly different from everyone else even when she quote unquote makes friends she's not really able to sort of socialize with them in that same way yeah so i have a bad habit of diagnosing our characters are we seeing like an emotional detachment disorder like an inability to form strong bonds well something's something's not right like we want them all to be friends and get along. And uh, that's what everyone's like moving towards. But there's still some detachment uh, that maybe no one is actually uh, equipped to address. You're saying like that they're not able to bring zero two in or you're saying. Yeah, I think there's some there's something, some kind of barrier that maybe they're not even aware of. Well, I mean, I guess she's got her claxosaur blood. Mm-hmm. She's older than mm-hmm. them. And they've all fucking like known each other their entire lives, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just in general, even I think if people are well-meaning, that can be very um, isolating for like 
the new person in a in a situation like that. So I don't blame her for being like, yeah, okay, we ate. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go swim. <laughs> you guys keep hanging. Well, I guess I've got something kind of shitty to s- disclose that like this is reminding me of. Like, you know, I've had a crew that I hung with in middle school and high school. And like in our circle of friends, we had like the guy who was in our circle of friends, but was kind of an oddball and like a lot of our communication didn't connect and humor didn't connect. And like looking back, I think maybe he was on the, the spectrum and we just were ignorant about those kind of things. But that's when I, what I think of when I think of like some kind of knowledge deficit, like there was just information that we didn't have that could have made those friendships better. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. but we're young and immature and didn't have a lot of guidance, a lot like these characters. Yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to is that, uh, is that these characters feel very realistic in that way to me and that they react very realistically to these situations. And I think that's part of what makes Frank's as a whole in this episode specifically compelling to me that like, I can recognize a lot of myself and my friends and situations I've been in. I- well, ju- just to touch on that same thing that you mentioned, Brian, I'm, I'm curious, Timo, since you're kind of like a, a generation younger than us, but like, I don't think I had even like heard the term autism until I was in college, maybe like I was like 19 or 20, like that just like wasn't part of popular culture. I'm assuming that that's kind of changed and that that would be like a concept that you would have been aware of when you're much younger team it was a concept that i understood but even then there was like a lot of sort of you know like we still use retarded as an insult all the way up until you know mid high school because there wasn't that same level of understanding of like oh this isn't just a trait this is like part of a person yeah and it affects that person you know it's it was very much sort of like a personality thing instead of ingrained into them so even though there was like this understanding that it existed there was still sort of a misunderstanding of exactly what it was i think yeah maybe maybe that's just kind of a concept that it's really hard to to get when you're when you're younger i don't know i I do want to address one thing you said I, i don't know if we're feeling the same thing or not but like you were talking about this nostalgic thing about high school friends and all that and i i kind of feel that and maybe that's why i'm attached to this show but like the nostalgic things that it brings out of me, like aren't necessarily positive. Oh no, they're terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, none of it was happy for me. <laughs> okay. So I'm not the only one. No. <laughs> I just needed that reality check. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, so do, do we want to do the last scene? The starlight lit walk uh, hero goes out on his own. Cause they, it's just like a shame to waste the time that they have away. And uh, Ichigo goes after him. Just like the last episode, uh, both Ichigo and Hiro, they're the two that can't sleep. And so they're, again, the two that stay awake. uh, And that's why they're the two that uh, go on this walk. Uh, I really like how it starts that uh, Ichigo does this cute little thing where she starts walking in Hiro's footsteps. But as the conversation shifts, eventually she takes the lead and he starts walking in her footsteps. I'm like, Ooh, yeah. I love this that. Great. Yeah. yeah I, I miss that. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole show. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. I, I never really thought too much about this scene before, but this time I was just like, Oh my God, I finally get it. So this episode's called shooting star moratorium. And they're 
talking about the stars. They're talking about Orion and they're recalling uh, Hero told her all this stuff about stars. And I can't remember the details. Like he came up with a star or there was a star, the Ichigo star. The 15th star in the Orion constellation. The 15th star of the Orion constellation. And I don't know if I have the words right, but it's so dim. It's really hard to see and it's easily overlooked. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like this is Ichigo. <laughs> like she has these yeah. feelings for Hero, and like Zero Two outshines her so brightly. And like in this scene, like she starts opening up to him, and he's not even listening. And then he cuts her off mid sentence as she's about to drop this bomb. It's like Ichigo, look, shooting stars. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, this poor girl. Like, I think there's actually an interesting meta conversation to be had about that as well. And that zero two often overshadows everyone else in the show when you're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, so there's like that sort of level of, you know, even more connection of like, she is the main focus of not only the characters, but she's such a big presence that she becomes a focus for fans and viewers as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I can't remember if this is right, but it turns out the second star, the zero two star in orion is beetlejuice which is one of the most visible stars <laughs> in the night sky mm. oh god wow the symbol the lore runs deep baby god, it's just layers <laughs> on layers man soon we'll get to the gutenberg layer <laughs> yeah i think that that's all i've got in my notes for this episode yeah oh except that uh the new outro sucks and the fan service oh, yeah. sucks and the, the song is okay no, it's terrible. Yeah. This outro is easily my least favorite of the series. Um, I, I just wanted to to check because I was listening on the subs and I wasn't good enough at the voices. But so after the, the star shooting scene, we see this shot of O2 sitting out on the rocks. Is that O2 narrating there or is that Ichigo? Well, I thought it was Ichigo. But the, like the okay. general sentiment was about like, like I hope the the impression lasts forever or something like that. Is it, are we thinking of the same thing? Yeah, I think so. Um, oh, there actually was one thing that uh, we skipped over that I totally forgot about, but way back at the beginning, uh, Zorome says something about, he's surprised that Goro is sort of interested in the girls in their swimsuits as well, specifically because he has a low code number. And they talk about how I thought you low code numbers were, different in that way and hmm. if you know if you take the code numbers be you know analogous to like student ability or test scores or whatever there's an interesting sort of you know parallel there of like that sort of misalignment of the quote-unquote smart kids ha- like lacking that sort of level of attraction that the, the lower scores have yeah zoro may is still just kind of shallow though <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. He, he still has a ways to go ben did you have any other thoughts about um i don't think so I, I i do want to make sure at some point we get the um the timo if you have any like recommendations for for if someone likes starling in the franks a lot like what other whether what other shows you would recommend that they watch uh, i mean obviously i i like gurren Logan a lot and obviously it's not going to be for everyone but i think if you like Darling in the franks there's a decent chance that you'll find something to like about Gurren Logan. Uh, if you're interested in Gurren the Franks for the interpersonal stuff, then Kisniver is also made by the same studio, and that has a really deep focus on interpersonal relationships. How, how do you spell that? Or K I Z N A I V E R. Great opening theme by Boom Boom Satellites as well. 
So if we're all good to go, I'll start us off. Pen. Pen. Pals. Darling. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it one way or another. Oh, all right. Gosh, well, I actually, I should have been taking notes because uh, now I can't really remember the exact spoiler things that I want to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the big ticket item is uh, your thoughts about Gurren Lagan being like the, the next. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but do you want to give us a, just a summary for the listening audience that may not be familiar with your channel? Yeah. So at the end of Darling of the Franks, there is a long time skip forward. And it appears that Hero and Zero Two are sort of reincarnated so that they can sort of perpetually have some sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. So my sort of half serious take on that is uh, Hero and Zero Two sort of eventually fight Verm, who are in effect exactly the same as the anti-spiral. Mm-hmm. And so when Zero Two dies, based on you know just how the flow of the story goes, with Zero Two sort of being like less human in general, uh, Hero sort of goes back to Earth and puts everyone underground and becomes Lord Genome <laughs> and his. <laughs> He sort of starts pseudo replacing Zero uh, Two with his daughters and Nia and people like that. Yeah. And purely based on uh, visual similarities, uh, Simon and Kamino are Ichigo and Goro's descendants, uh, just because they look very similar. Yeah. And that would lead to a sort of very funny children of the friends of Hero sort of going over and finishing his job by sort of showing how he was wrong and uh, mm-hmm. fixing his mistakes. Okay. And then eventually teaming back up with him to defeat the anti-spiral or Verm. You know, half serious, but I think there's enough there that... Yeah, that's fun. I like that. So I have only seen Gurren Lagann one time, and I kind of marathoned it. I think I watched the whole series in four days, I think. So the the anti-spiral and, and Verm. Uh, the anti-spiral, are they also some form of collective? Yeah. Yeah, can you sp- expand on that a bit? Yeah, so the anti-spiral are effectively, I may be remembering this slightly wrong, but my memory is that they there were a bunch of races that were destroying the universe based purely on like use of spiral power. Mm. And almost all of them sort of conglomerated into the anti-spiral, which is only ever portrayed as like one humanoid figure in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically the anti-spiral's goal is to keep spiral beings from ever reaching a certain threshold of power and ability because they'll destroy the universe or something yeah. along those lines. I'm not, I don't have a great memory of what Verm looks like, but I'm pretty sure they look very similar to the anti-spiral and they do sort of have that very similar one being made up of multiple aspects. Yeah. So like my perception of Verm was that it was kind of a twisted form of instrumentality, uh, collectivism specifically over communalism but in terms of Gurren Lagan, like if I remember right Verm also had some agenda of like assuming the role of some policing authority uh, yeah so there's there's got to be writers from the the studio trigger side that contributed I'm pretty sure the director on Gurren Lagan also worked in some capacity on Darling of the Franks yeah 
Yes, I mean that. Yes, it's, it has to come from the trigger side. I mean, Nishigori comes from the A one side, and there's none of that in Idol Masters. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be awesome if there was. <laughs> Can you imagine that pop idol show? With okay, I digress. I thought I had some other stuff that was like too spoilery to talk to with Ben here. Uh, the one that I remember is sort of the interaction between Mitsuro and Ikuno. To me, that always sort of read mm-hmm. as Mitsuro sort of like berating Ikuno for not being more upfront and honest with her uh, sexuality. Yeah. Just with the context going into it of uh, Mitsuro has some level of attraction to Hiro and presumably men as a whole. Mm-hmm. That sort of recontextualizes oh. that entire conversation. Like, are you kidding yourself in some way or... I didn't even think about that, that they're the two characters who have strong stated uh, attractions to same-sex partners. You're right. That does completely recontextualize that scene. Especially since they're also the two most isolated characters from the rest of the group. Like, they're the ones who are typically on their own or quiet. Uh, They're the least sociable, the least outgoing. Mm, Yeah. At least just this episode passed through, I sort of got, like like a sibling vibe between them, like oh, yeah. like a brother and sister yeah. that are very comfortable being abrasive to, towards each other. But okay, yeah, the other sort of spoilery thing, I really appreciated this episode. Like they're sort of laying the groundwork for later revelations, like the revelation yeah. that Hero's memory has been tampered with. I'm like, oh God, all the way back to episode seven. And yeah. now I can recall earlier instances of them planting those seeds like, oh, he's off. There's there's something off about this guy. Yeah, that does sort of raise the big missed opportunity with this episode, though, is that they set up a lot of interesting, like, pseudo world building that then just sort of gets dropped later on. So there is that sort of level of like, yeah, this feels like a very pointed setup that only some of it got followed up on. Yeah. So we don't have to include this in the recording or not, because it's like potentially provocative, but like... um like uh, disappointment with like the second half of the series. <laughs> it came out in 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounds right. And I don't remember when you posted your videos, the first two you did, or the two that you did. The first one I posted right after or right before episode 15. And the last one I posted a bit after the series ended. Yeah. So my personal experience is like, I've sort of swung back and forth about my feelings towards the last act of the show. So I guess I wanted to ask you, where are you now? For me, Darling of the Franks, I've basically split it into two very different things in my mind. Mm-hmm. There's Darling of the Franks, the series that I really fell in love with, uh, episodes 1 to 14, with a relatively satisfactory ending at episode 15 that I have some issues with, but ties up the series as much as possible. That sets up like what could be like a sequel series or something. And then Darling of the Franks, the series as a whole, which... I'm not as like passionately frustrated or upset with it as I used to be, but it is still sort of like, I think just the fan reaction to the backlash really sort of left a sour taste in my mouth because there were a lot of people who were very much like, if you were criticizing Darling of the Franks towards the ending, uh, they were sort of very negative on you uh, because they had really fallen in love with certain aspects uh, of the show. Like a lot of people really love zero too. And I think they were too close to it to really take a step back and realize what was happening in the show. Hmm. So I think that really left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth on the whole thing. That's funny. So they like developed an unhealthy emotional attachment to an emotionally (laughs) unattached person. 
<laughs> That's amazing. And then things didn't work out. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, this show is, has been a little bit of a mystery for me, uh, just in terms of the anime community's reception of it. Because I came in kind of late. Uh, I started watching it after it had finished airing. And it was peculiar to me, like how polarizing, like either people just loved it to pieces. And as you said, would like just get so uh, reactionary at any criticism or like they just hated it and it was absolute garbage. And I was like, wow. And that's actually yeah. what made me watch the show. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> it's interesting that there'd be something that polarizing. Yeah. I mean, there were like a lot of, as the episodes were coming out too, it was like an absolute shitstorm. Like the episode where... Uh, Ichigo kisses hero. Yes. Like, I think it's 14 right after. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to specifically ask you about that. Like, how did you experience that? Like, were you watching it as it was airing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I watched all of Frank's, you know, as they came out. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'd like, I'd go on to Reddit afterwards and see what people were thinking about and like how their reactions were. And it was just vicious after that with so many people like just spewing hate towards, a, like a fictional character because they had formed this attachment to zero two. And part of what I like about that scene is that it characterizes Ichigo in a very strong way. Mm. But a lot of people sort of just take that as like, I hate this character now. It's just emotions were always running high and that was a little too much for me. Okay. So like just yourself watching episode 14, do you f remember feeling like angry or betrayed? Oh no, I loved episode 14. Okay. I, I really liked it because for me, the relationship between Zero Two and Hero has always been a very complicated and toxic one that I always sort of saw as it could not continue forever. Like piloting with Zero Two was literally killing Hero. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they form a bit of a connection and it stops killing him. And then it starts killing both of them later on. Mm. Ultimately, it does kill them. Right. Yeah. They're together to the bitter end, but. Uh, they got to be happy, but everyone else got to live. Yeah. And I mean, I think to that extent, there's that level of like captivating relationships that two people are really drawn to each other while still being deeply dysfunctional and dangerous to each of the partners. And so that sort of reversal with Ichigo sort of uh, trying to pull Hiro out of that in her own somewhat selfish, but also uh, that was really affecting to me. So I really liked episode 14, but me too. A lot of people did not. Yeah. Uh, I think the first YouTube video I ever saw about Darling and the Franks was addressing like uh, the fan base posting, like the home addresses of some of the animators oh, uh, in a threatening way. Uh, it's like, holy shit, that's out of hand, man. Um, um, Timo, where can people find your content? I'm on YouTube, uh, the channel Moments in Media. It it won't come up if you put spaces in between Moments in Media. So one word, Moments oh, in Media. That's so sad. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. We had the same problem. Like when I would search for pen pen pals, I would search for like pen pen and it was like, you want pen pals, right? I'm like, no, I, <laughs> I have two pens in there. Yeah. But yeah, I make videos about aspects of pieces of media that I really like that I think contribute to the whole of it in a very significant way. Do you have a certain episode of uh, Moments in Media that you're like especially proud of? I think my favorite episode is the one I did on Legend of Korra uh, because- mm. Another um, polarizing. <laughs> yeah. 
it didn't mean much to me when it first came out, but it means a lot to me in retrospect. And I, I think that one is a good way to get a sort of the vibe of my videos. Okay. And is there uh, anything that we should be on the lookout for, for future releases? The near future is there's a video on one piece that I'm putting out relatively soon. All right. Uh, it's, it's the perspective of someone who only just now got into one piece, which is coming relatively soon. That is my uh, stepdad's number one favorite show. He's seen every episode in all the movies. Nave loves One Piece? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we got to get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need a translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much. You've been an awesome guest. Uh, got a, yeah, thank you. A lot of fun new insights on uh, an episode I never really thought too much about before. Yeah.